following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. Glenn Miller has been here at our church, well, a while ago he was here for a missions conference, and then he's probably been here four or five times since then. And I know for one, when he speaks, I am always challenged, I'm always encouraged, I really enjoy the times that Glenn is here ministering to us. I know from feedback I've gotten from you that you all feel the same way. I was kind of laughing with him this morning that as I was greeting people who were coming in the door, I think he might have greeted as many people as I did. So in some ways, it, uh, I also appreciate kind of the pastoral presence that you bring also, Glenn. So uh, Glenn's going to be talking this, well, I'm going to let you introduce the topic. Why don't you come on up, Glenn? <clears throat> Lord, I'm grateful for Glenn. I'm grateful for the ministry that you have given him in so many places for so many years. And I'm grateful for the privilege we have this morning of having him minister your word to us. So we ask your blessing on him this morning. Amen. For about uh, 30 years of my life, well, this was my life. My life was tied up inside in a bunch of, of knots. You know, there's various things that can tie you up in knots in life. Um, one of mine was emptiness. Had no real purpose in life. I was high school teacher, I was a basketball coach, I was doing fairly well, but, but inside my life was, was empty. Actually, it wasn't empty. It was filled up with some of the stuff that's up there on the side. Probably, I mean, you all look so nice and you're dressed up so good. You, you don't never have struggled with any things like frustration or guilt or fear or shame or regret, or you all look so contented and nice. Gosh, um, maybe this message that I have here is just, just for me this morning. Huh? How about the one regret? I have a lot of regrets for the first 30 years of my life. I wish I could wash it all away, but it's, it's there. I will say something about regret this morning. When you look in the rearview mirror, in terms of regret, you need to leave it buried. Whatever you've done, whatever I've done, it's history if you've come to know uh, the Savior. He's taking your sins as far as the east is from the west. He's threw them behind his back. Now, imagine this rope is uh, longer. It's a little thicker, and I tie at one end a Massey Ferguson and the other end a, a Massey Ferguson, and then I have them pull it taunt. And then you get this rope and you try as you can to untangle those knots once they've been pulled by a tractor. What would you call that? <laughs> You'd call it an impossibility. There's no way, shape, or form that you could untie all these knots in your life. In John chapter 3, <clears throat> Jesus comes to a pool called the Pool of Bethsaida. And uh, it, it tells us there, well, this is what it says. In there lie a multitude of people, sick, lame, blind, you, you name it. All right? Now, remember the things that I just had up on the board? You, you can walk today. You walked in here. You can see today. You're not blind. 
But those other ones that I mentioned, fear and guilt and shame and so forth, they've kept people down by a pool a long time. And there was a guy down there, he was there for 38 years. Couldn't walk. So the story goes that once upon a time, or at certain times of the year, an angel came down, the first one in the water, got in, he got healed. So this guy's been sitting there 38 years and so Jesus comes to him and asks him a question you wouldn't think. Do you wish to get well? And he says, I got no one to put me down. And uh, if you know the story, you know exactly what, what Jesus did. He got up and he began to walk for the first time in his life. In other words, Jesus began to untie some of the knots and so forth in his life. You see, you're, you're unable to untie the knots in your life. I'm unable. There are four kinds of us people here today. I can put it this way. One day, somebody comes to say, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, no one. Why do you call me Good. There's only one who is good. There are no good people in the world as our sister was, was praying here today. It's an impossibility. So there's four kinds of us here today. There are bad people. That means <laughs> you don't measure up. Who don't know that they're bad. There are bad people trying to be good. And there are bad people who are bad and they don't care about getting good. And then there are bad people confessing their inability to tie, untie the knots in their life and to get rid of the guilt and the shame and the fear and the emptiness and so forth. Now, I want you to turn your Bible, if you would, to Psalm 78. It's right in the middle Psalm of your Bible, Psalm 78. Psalm 78 is a history of God's people. It's a recount of their wanderings and some of their, their uh, journeys and so forth with Yahweh, their, their creator. And uh, this is what it says at the beginning of Psalm 98. <clears throat> I want to read for you the first four verses. Follow along with me. If you have your Bible, you can follow along. Listen, O my people. That's a word for you. It's a word for me. We're, we're his people if we've come to faith in him. Listen to my word, to my instruction. Incline your ear to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. Notice, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. If you're a father here today, if you're a mother here today, do not, look at the next verse, we will not conceal them from their children. What are you preparing, uh, parents and grandparents, what are you preparing your children for? I live in the richest valley, my wife and I in, in the world, Silicon Valley. Education is an unbelievable value and so forth there. When I preached a couple years ago, I came back from Zimbabwe and I said, fathers, it was on Father's Day, fathers, what are you preparing your children for? To get into Harvard, to UCLA, to Berkeley, to Yale, to University of Michigan, 
You want them to have a six, seven-figure salary and a big home? If that's what you're preparing your children, your grandchildren for, you're a failure. You have to prepare your children to meet God. And that's the instruction here. We will not conceal them, but tell to the generation to come, notice, the praises of the Lord. Man, he's worthy to be praised. Now note, and his strength and his wonders which he has done. Now the title of my message today is, Is Church of the Living God Limiting God? Well, how about you as a person? Could you, as an individual Jesus follower, be limiting what he wants to do in your life and my life? Now, this next slide that, that appears on the screen here, I want us to read out loud together. Can we do that? Are you still awake? All right, you're not sleeping yet. Okay, that's, that's good news. How often they provoked him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Yes, again and again they tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power the day when he redeemed them from the enemy when he worked his signs in Egypt. Notice those words are underlined. They provoked Yahweh. They grieved him. You know, we can grieve the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. They tempted God. They put him to the test, and they limited the limitless one of what God can do in their lives. And those people who wandered about in the wilderness, no man 20 years of upwards, save Joshua and Caleb, ever made it into the promised land. God scattered their dead bodies in the wilderness because of one word. Do you know what it is? Why didn't they make it in? One word. Anybody give me a one-word answer? Unbelief. You can read about it in Hebrews chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 4. They did not enter in. They didn't cross over the Jordan. They didn't, they, they didn't have the abundance that God had provided for them, cities that they had not built and plants and trees and things that, that, you know, they didn't plant. It was all theirs in abundance. They never made it in because of unbelief. You see, we don't want to limit God and what he can do in your life and my life. But you know what? Sometimes you see the Red Sea there? Those are the things that are before us, and sometimes our fear, our shame, our guilt, all of this here, our bitterness that we hold inside, that only destroys you and hurts you. And God puts us in those kind of places so that we're up against it. And then if we confess our, our limitlessness and we cry out to him, he can make a way through and part the Red Seas and he can begin to heal some of the hurts and pains in our life and he can begin to untie the knots that are there that you cannot untie and I cannot untie. Now they limited the Holy One of Israel. I want to share just three thoughts with you today. When you came in, there's, you have a little outline and so forth that's there. The first is, is this. They limited God because they did not believe in the power of God. 
Notice what Psalm 62, 11 says. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. The Hebrew word is us there. It means strength or might. All power belongs to him. And you know what he does? He wants to strengthen you from the inside out. He wants to come and dwell in your heart by faith. And then he wants to make himself known through you. And so we limit God sometimes what he, what he can do uh, for us and what he can do through us if we don't trust him, if we don't believe in him, if we tempt him, if we grieve him, if we provoke him. No, he's able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond what you and I can ever ask or think. Now, I was going to, I have a, a, a roll of duct tape, my sister's duct tape here. Surely many of you know her. I was going to get down on the ground and I was going to make myself, I was tear some things off and I was going to make myself a little box and I was going to place myself in the center of it. But I didn't do it because you can't, can't see up here. Couldn't see the tape that I had. But, but sometimes that's what we do. We put ourselves in this box and we've got our knots in our life and then and, and we're just stuck there. You need help from the outside. You need to somehow step outside of your box and you need to get God's perspective and you need to trust in who he is and what he said. And sometimes what we try to do is we, we try to keep God in the box. Your little imaginary picture of, of who God is in your mind. He's a whole lot bigger than what you think. <laughs> and the power of God, uh, uh, honestly, it's, it's um, well, there, there's another word, a Hebrew word in the Old Testament is called hesed. Not hesed like we would say, but hesed. And here's a picture of God's love for you and me. There is no greater power in the world than the love of God. Uh, the, the word is first mentioned, love in the Bible, uh, to Lot. <laughs> Lot didn't deserve God's love like you didn't deserve God's love either. But that's where it's first mentioned. It's mentioned 11 times, this word hesed, in the, the book of Genesis. It's mentioned 128 times in the book of Psalms alone and 248 times in all of the Old Testament. But how is God's love manifested? See, it's more than just uh, kindness. Like if somebody's in a line ahead of you, you say, oh, sir, you, you go ahead, or, or ma'am, you go ahead. It, it, it's not just that. No, God's love reaches down when, when we're at, at the end of our rope, we're in a pit, we can't get out, and he pulls us out. And so look at these, these words. These are all Hebrew words. God's love manifests itself in justice and truth and goodness and righteousness and his covenants. I think last time I was here, I shared with you uh, five words that take the Bible from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation chapter 22. And God makes covenants. He makes promises and he keeps them. The covenant that he made with Noah, the covenant that he made with Abraham, the covenant that he made with Moses and David and the promise of the new covenant. And then, of course, the coming of 
the Messiah, the Savior of the world. God fulfills all of his covenants. If you're a parent here today, your love is manifested not just by what you do and provide for your family, but it's manifested by the guidelines and the boundaries that you give for your children. You are to raise them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. A.W. Tozer said that the most wonderful, the greatest thoughts that ever enter your mind are the thoughts you think about God that are true. There's a lot of things that you think about God that are untrue. And when we're small, we think God is like our dad, perhaps. A child cannot uh, contrast. They can compare, but they can't contrast. As they get older, that's a different story. But you may think because your dad didn't treat you right, he was angry or this or that or whatever, that that's what God is like. He's not like that. That's what Adam and Eve thought in the garden when they blew it. Who was looking for who? <laughs> hey, where are you, Adam? He was the one on the run. He was the one with fear and shame. They covered themselves. They were, they were naked before and now they were ashamed. Huh? No, the power of God. Can you say that with me? The power of God. Say it like you mean it. Don't limit him. He's able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond what you can ever ask or think. It's Ephesians chapter 3. Now, here's my second thing. If you're taking notes, you've got a note down there. It's the power, you won't hear too many messages on this, the power of weakness. Now, if you live where I live and they have a seminar put on by Google or Facebook or Adobe or HP or Apple or something like that, those presenters that are up there presenting will not talk about, I want to share with you today, all of you young leaders, you entrepreneurs, I'm going to share with you the power of weakness. If you had an advertisement like that and you wanted to draw young entrepreneurs in, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have anybody there. The seats would all be empty. But you see, when Jesus came, he went in and he changed all the price tags in the stores. And what we think is important and valuable, in his mind, a lot of it is just plain rubbish. That's it. Paul had some kind of a thorn in his flesh. And God used that thorn in his flesh to keep him at a point of need. And that's been one of my prayers in my life 45 years ago when I became a believer. God, whatever it takes to keep me at a point of need. I've almost died five times. Now, that's pretty serious. <laughs> it's just keep me needy. Deliver me from my arrogance. Thinking that I know everything. How much do you know of all that's out on the internet today? Would you say 1% of all the knowledge that's out there? Now, you can, you can click something in, and in two seconds, you'll get a, a, like a million <laughs> uh, websites or hits that come up. We know so little. God's thoughts are not your thoughts. His ways are not your ways. He doesn't operate the same way you operate. 
but he wants to operate in our lives and he wants to keep us at a point of need. So whatever this thorn was in his flesh, whether it was epilepsy or if he was a speaker and he, he just stuttered, that, that would be, you know, something I'd like to get rid of if I was a stutterer. God says, no, I'm not going to take the thorn, whatever it was, out of your flesh. It actually was a messenger of Satan to keep him humble. So this is what he says. Most gladly. Notice that. Does this sound crazy? I'm going to boast about my weakness. Now this afternoon, if you watch NFL football, those guys that are dancing and prancing in the end zone, they're not talking about how weak they are. They're talking about how great they are. Look at this play that I just made. Yeah, look at me. Put the camera on me. <laughs> Paul says, I'm going to boast about my weakness. Why? So that purpose clause, the power of Christ, may dwell in me. Are you content today? Contentment is a missing ingredient, unfortunately, a lot of God's people. Paul says, I've learned how to be content. It's a process of trusting in him. He, Paul says, I'm well content with what? What's the next word? Huh? I'm well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. The only way you can handle those things are the next three words, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am Say that. When I am weak, then I am strong. Say it. Like you mean it. Do you believe it? You like to be weak? You like to be in control. Some of us here are control freaks. You like to control things. You like to have your handle. You cannot put God in a box. You cannot untie the knots in your life. Try as you may. You'll never figure it out. You need help from the outside for the work that he needs to do here on the inside in your life. There's a boy, he was 10 years old, and he had lost his left arm in an automobile accident. And all his friends were playing, you know, sports, basketball, football, and things like that. And he says, Mom, Dad, I want to I do a sport. They said, Son, you got one arm. He says, Yeah, I know, but I, 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 I want to do something. He said, What I want to do is, is I, I want to learn judo. He said, Son, you got one arm. <laughs> he says, I know. Could you find me a teacher? So they hunted and they searched and they found this old Japanese judo instructor who was a master teacher. He's retired. They found him and he says, hey, could you teach our son judo? And he says, well, thank you very much, but he only has one arm. <laughs> he says, yeah, we, we know that, but he really wants to, to learn. Could, could you have a go at it? And he says, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll give it a try. So this master instructor, Japanese instructor took him one month, two months, three months, four months, five months, six months. And he only taught him one move. Because, you know, in judo, you got to throw people. And the old judo instructor says to him, he says, you're ready for the tournament. 
And the 10-year-old boy says, I'm ready for a tournament. I only know one move. He says, you're ready. So they went to this tournament. It was four rounds. He won the first round easily. Won the second round easily. Third round was a little bit tougher, but uh, the opponent that he had made a mistake, and he threw him, and he won the match. Now I was coming up against a boy who from little on up had known judo. And he was bigger, he was stronger, way more experienced. And they started the match and the official, the referee, after a while was going to call it. And the old Japanese instructor said, let him go. And so they let him go. And he kept going. All of a sudden, this more experienced, stronger young man made a mistake. And he threw this boy and won the match. So they're driving home in the car. The old Japanese instructor's driving. The boy's sitting right next to him over here. And this 10-year-old boy looks at him. And he says, how in the world did I win? He says, well, you won because of two reasons. Number one, the most important move in all of judo is the move I taught you and you mastered it. Secondly, the only defense against that move is for your opponent to grab your left arm. <laughs> so, moral of the story, point taken, his weakness became his greatest strength. When I am weak, then I am Then I'm strong. Okay? But actually, he won because... Of a third reason. He came under the authority of a master teacher. And when you put yourself under the authority of the master, what God can do in you and through you is limitless. Now, this is how we think naturally. Weakness equals lack of power. But weakness does not equal lack of power. And look at the third thing. Weakness is an opportunity to experience God's power. You know Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your, do not lean your own, in all your ways acknowledge, and he will direct your, you can't direct your own. You need help. You need someone to lead you, to guide you. I'm going to put up uh, here, it's going to come up on the screen, three statements regarding weakness. Here's the first. What if your weakness, whatever that might be, you know, is the very vehicle through which God has always wanted to reveal his power? What if God has you in a situation with your children, with issues that they face, that you face, and so forth? It's beyond you. You can't figure it out. You can't solve it just like that. What, just what if? Here's a second. What if the path, note this, the path to true power isn't trying harder to be more powerful, but giving up the attempt to be powerful altogether? See, we want to be powerful. And God has to break down our power. So the Lord Jesus is in the garden. 
And he's facing the cross. And on an emotional level, he doesn't want to face it. But nevertheless, my will, not yours, be done. Sometimes I, I, I have a coin in my pocket and I say, what you need to pray in your life is the coin prayer of Jesus. You know, there's heads on one side, tails on the other side. Okay? Heads, tails. Jesus says, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. You need to pray that. When you face situations and you try to dictate to God what he should do. Not my will, but yours be done. Third, what if the very way, now note this, that God worked in the lives of his servants in biblical history is the same way he wants to work in your life, in my life. Could that be possible? Now, I've taught through Hebrews chapter 11. I've taught from there many times. It's one of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible. But there's a little phrase in, towards the end of it that says this. You know, they conquered kingdoms. They shut the mouths of lions. They did all this and that. And then it says this. From weakness were made what? Strong. strong. From weakness they were made strong. You see, God always had to break down their strength. He had to put Jacob's hip on a joint. He tried to do, run his life on his own way. And he had to wrestle with God. And God put his hip on a joint. He always had a reminder with the limp that he walked. Powers perfected Jacob in weakness. Jehoshaphat comes up against a big army and he's, he says, he cries out, Lord, we are powerless. Oh, that's a recipe for victory. And he sends out the choir. And God routes, routes the enemies. That's the way it works. So as you read through the Old Testament stories and so forth, God always had to confront Israel. He put them in hard places so that they would look up, so that they would cry out, so they, they, they wouldn't just depend on themselves. And the same is true in your life, in my life. Are you well content with insults, with weakness, with difficulties, with persecutions? Well, thank you, Lord. When I am weak, I'm a whole lot stronger than I think. Now, here's the third thing, is the power of brokenness. Because when you see your weaknesses and you cry for help, you, God wants to break you down. I go to the gym every day, but Sundays when I'm home, and I was a coach of basketball 30 years, you, you got to break down some muscles before you can start to build them back up again. And that's what God has to do in your life and my lives. He breaks us down. By the way, 
If you ever study the word broken in the Bible, you know, broken pitchers, God gives a victory. Break the bread, five loaves, two fish. There's, there's all kinds of things. The power of brokenness. I want you to, to say uh, th- th- these two verses out loud with me. Would you do that with me? Here we go. We were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life indeed. We had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. They were burdened excessively. Oh, that hurts, huh? But that's what God does. He puts places and things in our lives. Now look at the purpose, two purpose causes. So that we despaired even of life. That we would not trust in ourselves. That's your major number one problem. You. You trust in yourself. Instead of trusting in the Lord Jesus. Put all your faith and trust in him and him alone. You know when the devil left, stopped tempting Jesus? There's three temptations there. The third one, you shall worship God. The next word is alone. Or one version said him only. When you come to the point in your life where it's him alone and him only, then you have what you need. You've got him. And he's enough. And he can satisfy. He can satisfy you in the morning with his loving kindness and he can satisfy you throughout the day and when you put your head on a pillow at night. You know, I used to teach science way back, started in 66. You have a North Pole and North Pole, you know, magnets. You put them, what happens? Huh? So when we are proud and we're arrogant and we think we have and we want to connect to God's power, no, no, no. They don't attract. They repel. But there's one word that can help connect you to the power source, and that's the word humility. God is opposed to the, he gives grace to the humble. Only when you're humble. Only when you're dependent. Only when you cry out for help. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, that man went away justified, not the Pharisee. Now, nothing is impossible with God. Here are three thoughts with you. I have my, I have my back pocket. Uh, you know what this is. You have children. It's Play-Doh. You want to keep your heart, your life, like this. So you humble yourself. And you become like a child playing with Play-Doh. If you keep your heart moldable, he is the potter and you are the clay. Let him mold you. Some of our hearts become like stone. Try to squeeze a stone. 
Try to mold that. No, you can't. But if you humble yourself like a child, in fact, you never get into the kingdom of God without humbling yourself like a child. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's the only way you get in. If you humble yourself and you admit your wickedness, and that's the second thing here, admit your wretchedness. We don't like to admit our wretchedness. We are as sick as our secrets. You got to come out of hiding. So Paul realized in his own life that the very thing he didn't want to do sometimes he did. Of course, that never happens to any of you good people here today. No, no, we know all about that. I realized then that in my flesh there dwelleth nothing good. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me? He asked the right question. Who? Not what. Not some gimmick. Not some ten quick steps. Who? And so that's the end of chapter 7. And chapter 8 is life in the spirit. And you'll never experience life in the spirit until you admit your wretchedness and your helplessness and your hopelessness. And you come to him. And then he can fill you. And then he can mold you into what he wants you to be. And he doesn't mold us in the same mold. There's no one like you in all the world. You're not a carbon copy. You're not a duplicate. You're special. You're the apple of his eye, actually. And then you submit yourself to his will. Not my will, but yours be done. Ha have at it. In uh, 1976, after I came back, 75, a trip from Af Africa, Kenya, Ethiopia, and Egypt, playing basketball, fearing Jesus, my wife and I knelt down at the edge of our bed on 381 Madison Drive, San Jose, California, and we prayed this prayer. Lord, we'll go anywhere. We'll do anything with anybody. 75, that's quite a few years ago now. Guess what? We've never rescinded that. That's, I'm 76 now. I'll go anywhere, do anything with anybody if he directs me. I just pray that I stay. Would you pray with me? You want to pray a prayer? Stay, pray that Glenn would stay moldable in the hand of the potter. Here's a quote by Tozer. An infinite God... can give all of himself to each of his children. He does not distribute himself that each may have a part, but to each one he gives all of himself as full as if there were no others. I like these two words that you have up here, Christ and hope. Colossians 1.27 says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christianity is Christ in unity, Christ in meity. It's Christ. He wants to live his life through you. That's your only hope. It's the only hope of the world. Now there's a next little slide is going to have a little saying on it that we've uh, repeated before, but we're going to do it again. I want you to say this with me. Let's say it. When I am weak, then I am strong. Again, 
when I am weak, then I am strong. If you forget everything else I said today, just remember, there's power in weakness. There's power in brokenness. And the power comes from Almighty God, not from yourself. Now, I started out my, my message with this little um, uh, rope, this little knot and so forth here. So, uh, I, I want us together today <laughs> to say a knot prayer. Not a N-O-T knot, but, well, I guess they're kind of combined. Can you read this all right? Yeah, let's say it together. My mind, my heart, my life. Remove the have-nots, the cannots, the do-nots that I have in my mind. Erase the will-nots, the may-nots, and the might-nots that find a home in my heart. Release me from the could-nots, the would-nots, and the should-nots that obstruct my life. Most of all, dear God, I ask that you remove from my mind, my heart, and my life all the am-nots that I have allowed to hold me back, especially the thought that I am not good enough. You see, we've conjured up in our mind a wrong view of God. When God, as I shared before, come down and asked Adam, Adam, where are you? Listen, it was not the voice of a policeman. It was the voice of a loving God. God was not looking to tell him he was the criminal. Shame, shame, shame on you. It was the heart of a father to a son wanting him to come back home. And maybe God has put some knots in your life that you cannot untie so that you would humble yourself and come home. And what he can do is he can begin to straighten out your life, if you let him. Here's the last slide. It's taken from Romans chapter 5, verse 6. While we were still, what's the next word? Helpless. What? Helpless. I can't hear you. Helpless. You're helpless. Helpless. Powerless, that is, to provide for your salvation. At the right time, Christ died as a substitute for the ungodly, for sinners. He came into the world to save sinners like Glenn, like you. And when we humbly confess and we come before him, he began to straighten our lives up and we start to think 
correctly. We start to think biblically. We start to think and to live godly lives. I'm going to pray with you, but I want you to pray with me with your eyes open. I mean, if you can find chapter and verse where you say, close your eyes and bow your heads. <laughs> no, Jesus lifted up his eyes to the heavens. So, Father, I want to thank you today for each special, special person here. Made in your image. Made for your glory. I have no idea about what they're experiencing. I have no idea about the different kinds of knots that they have in their lives. And I pray that they would humble themselves under your mighty hand and they would begin to trust you at deeper levels. That they would begin to open the word of God And they would begin to behold you, Lord Jesus, in the pages of Scripture. And then they would be changed from one degree of glory to another by you, by your Holy Spirit. And so help us all to remember today that we're yours by faith in Jesus. And help us to remember that the power of God is available to all of us because you're in us, all of you, not in bits and pieces, Father. And that there is power when we admit our weaknesses. And there is power that can flow out of our lives, out of our brokenness. You can reassemble those pieces together and you can make something very, very beautiful. And you get all the credit. And we don't get any. And that's the way it should be. So thank you for each one here today. And I pray that, uh, that as they go today, <clears throat> that they would remember that power is perfected in weakness. And so we ask these things in the most powerful name on earth, Jesus. Amen. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.